This podcast was made possible by the generous support of our Patreon patrons. They provide us with the resources we need to produce each episode. You can join them at 90milesfromneedles.com slash Patreon. Ahoy there! Oh, look at that. Mylar! We are... By all accounts of what the middle of nowhere means. This is This is it. Sheep Hole Valley Wilderness. Mylar is everywhere. And desert tortoise confuse it for flowers and they eat it. And then it gets stuck in their digestive tract and they slowly die of starvation. Well, thanks for picking that up and putting that in your quick-release trash bag. Yeah. Well, at least we had an adventure. Yes. <laughs> we may not have got all of our hiking chatter recorded, but we got that mylar. Look at that right there. Just boom. Now I'm willing to bet we're going to find another one. The sun is a giant blowtorch aimed at your face. There ain't no shade nowhere. Let's hope you brought enough water. It's time for 90 Miles from Needles, the desert protection podcast with your hosts Chris Clark and Alicia Pike. Hey, it's Alicia. On today's episode, little things that are big things. There's nothing quite like walking through a desert wash listening to the phenopeplas chirping back and forth to one another, singing their songs, the crunch of the sand beneath your feet, the smell of the trees aspirating in the air. And if it's after a good storm, there's nothing quite like it. But one thing you don't expect to find when you're in the midst of this awe and glory is a mylar balloon stuck in a bush or tree. It's a boy, it says. I can only imagine where the rest of these balloons ended up if this one managed to find me in a crevice in the wonderland of rocks. It's time to dive in and take a peek at all the ins and outs of Mylar. Hello, my friends from 90 Miles from Needles. My name is Michael Vomstead, and I'm a resident of 29 Palms, California. And I have been here for about 18 years. I've spent many hours, both recreationally and leisurely, as well as work-wise, walking around the backcountry of the Mojave Desert. And by far, not even not even close, the largest litter item I find away from any kind of developed road or bathroom or campground or anything like that are balloons. So it's really depressing when in the far back country, four or five miles away from any kind of road up in the mountains, watching bighorn sheep and tortoise walking around. And lo and behold, multiple times in a day, you'll find these shiny mylar balloons, usually with the strings still attached to them in shrubs. 
even though I pick these balloons up and fill up my pockets almost every day, really feel useless on what we can actually do about it other than pick them up. Mylar, a very specific, non-biodegradable material. Mylar is made of synthetic nylon with a metallic coating and completely 100% non-biodegradable. Pollution is a real issue. As plastics break down, they become microscopic and therefore very difficult to remove from the ocean and beaches and the desert, where we try and clean up. We can't clean it all up. It's just impossible. General consensus is 450 years for plastic to degrade in ideal conditions like water or tropical areas. The bacteria that aids in the decomposition process cannot eat a lot of synthetic plastics, rendering them a permanent addition to our environment and our bodies. Microplastics are readily detected in humans and other living organisms on this planet. In humans, the scientifically studied types of harm documented include cell death and allergic response, and we currently do not understand the long-term effects. Animals easily mistake deflated balloons as food, causing airway and stomach blockages, leading to a slow death by asphyxiation or starvation. Not exactly what you intended with the balloon release, eh? This colorful festive litter has been harmful to the wildlife, including desert tortoises. Potentially get ingested by animals and just in general litter the landscape and these ribbons, you know, same thing, it can get tangled up in, in animals' uh, feet and paws and, and also uh, their throats and then they can't eat anymore. The light nature of helium gas allows this environmental hazard to be picked up by our prevailing westerly winds and eventually it deflates in the desert. All right, hello, can you hear us? Yes, yes I can. It's really great that you're here with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. Can you tell the audience your name and your organization? My name is Christian Daniels, and I started the Desert Balloon Project, which is where I go out in the desert where no one else hikes. So as we like go hiking, we'll see wild flowers, and then we'll see balloons. And on my Facebook page, there are a few posts of comparisons of balloons to the natural flowers. We started picking them up in heavy tortoise areas. So the tortoises don't eat the balloons because the tortoises mistake the mylar balloons for flowers and other food sources. Usually it'll get inside their intestines and like tangle inside their intestines and then it's like poison for us, I'd say. It's the desert tortoises poison. I have seen it like where there'll be times where we'll go hiking and we'll be in heavy tortoise habitat and me and my dad will see the balloons inside the burrows so we know the tortoises will drag the mylar balloons into their burrows so tell us what the goals of your project are the goals of my project are to bring awareness of why releasing mylar balloons is dangerous for tortoises so i thought that if I started the organization, I could bring awareness and hopefully we can like stop the Mylar balloon releases. I read that you're involved in getting some legislation passed to ban balloon releases. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It would outlaw the mass release of Mylar balloons. We all know that not everyone's going to stop releasing balloons. 
that if we can get that legislation passed, it'll definitely decrease the amount of balloons that end up in the desert and potentially save the desert tortoises' life. Are you going for city or statewide with that? Because I know Chris has heard me talk about wanting to go for <laughs> the whole country. Like, forget about the states. Let's just ban them completely. Are you going for state or city or what? Right now, we're going to just do it in Vegas. That way we can start small and then we can expand. And then I, over time, we'll try to see if Henderson will stop releasing balloons. And then we'll just take it like one city at a time. That's where I kind of started off because like, with like graduation parties and stuff, people will release them. And, like, they'll either go in the desert or they'll go in oceans. Since I live in the desert, I can only take care of the desert. Can you tell us about when you first started to do this project, when you were out hiking, the, the feelings that you had seeing all these balloons in disparate parts of the desert? When I started, I was overwhelmed. When you go out in the desert, you don't expect to find this many balloons or other garbage out there and there's a lot out there we've hiked roughly 800 miles and we've picked up 3,000 or more balloons i've lived in vegas my entire life we'll just pick a spot on the map and it's like this seems like a good place to see if there's any balloons and so we'll just drive there and then we'll go hike straight out in the middle of the desert so you came up with the hashtag Tied and Inside. Can you tell us about that? The hashtag Tied Inside is like to keep balloons like inside houses or inside garbage cans because when you release them, they'll end up in the desert. And they'll end up in the desert, trees, and Joshua trees, sage bushes, and power lines too. Do you have any upcoming events for the Desert Balloon Project? We've planned on starting group hikes and in the past i have been a part of like a the Tule springs national monument we went there and i set up a tent and i told people about why releasing mylar balloons is bad for tortoises in the beginning we started just to throw them away in our garbage can now i have a box in my garage that's just filled with all the balloons we have found over the many and many times we've been hiking and it's it's filled to the top now so i think we're gonna have to get a new box <laughs> everyone's pretty supportive out of all the hundreds of followers i have uh gotten over the past two years <laughs> i think i have 400 followers on facebook now well i hope we can encourage your instagram trend to continue Users are free to share photos of themselves with a Mylar balloon or more that they've picked up on trail and hashtag themselves tied and inside. My Facebook page is called Desert Balloon Project, so they can just type in Desert Balloon Project and it should bring them straight to my Facebook page. Through Facebook or Instagram, go get your photos now with Mylar balloons. Let's get them off the trail and in the trash. Hashtag tied and inside. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you for having me.
much every time I leave my house, I see my alarm balloons and just <laughs> driving the dirt road to the main road from my house just a couple of weeks ago, there was literally one floating down the road directly beneath our power lines, I might add. And I had to hop back in the car, put it in reverse and drive rather quickly to get ahead of it and then jump out and catch it. Every time I walk the dogs, I find trash. And mylar, that's at least once or twice a week I'm finding one in a bush. And it's the most devastating thing, whether it's in my neighborhood or whether it's out in the wilderness, is to find a highly degraded mylar balloon. You touch it and it shatters. And, and it's impossible to get every last bit. I remember on a hike with Chris, I found an extremely degraded mylar balloon in a pack rat nest just covered in the mouse poops. And I was not prepared for that. I do not carry latex gloves on trail. Maybe I should. But yeah, you can't. you just can't remove it all. And for me, that's why it's got my attention so much, because it's everywhere I go, whether I'm in the city or the country or the wilderness, National Park, Bureau of Land Management land, it doesn't matter. They're everywhere. And just driving the other day, I saw a mylar balloon stuck in the power line just hanging out there. For me, it's a daily occurrence and uh, something needs to be done. We have to choose our battles, but something that seems so minor, I think, is actually quite important. It's killing animals. It's given us power outages, and it's ugly. Part of the definition of wilderness is untrammeled. So to find a balloon out there, for me, it's a bummer, man. I didn't go out there to see your little Homer Simpson drawing in the sand. Just leave that shit at home. Now let's talk about some solutions. There is legislation in the works across the country there will not be any more helium balloon releases in Cleveland. That's right. Last night, City Council passed legislation to ban the release of 10 or more balloons at a time. Violators will get a citation and a $150 fine. And the same goes for a lot of the different balloon releases and balloon-related activities throughout South Florida. In 2012, a state law was passed making it illegal to release more than 10 balloons in a 24-hour span. The penalty ranging anywhere from $250 to $1,000. But is that enough? What we've been asking state lawmakers to update our state law and to make sure that we are not allowing any intentional balloon releases. So let's go ahead and vote. Motion carries unanimously. With that, Encinitas becomes the first city in the county to ban the sale of helium balloons. State Representative Sam Yingling is a member of the House Energy and Environment Committee. He's sponsoring legislation banning the release of 50 or more balloons. Do it once, get a warning. Do it again, a $500 fine for every 50 balloons. You will get a fine if you violate this bill. Montgomery and Queens Anne's counties, along with Ocean City, already have bans on balloon releases in place. The battle over balloons in New Jersey. All right, on one side, an Atlantic County state senator who wants to ban balloon releases. On the other, a Trenton-based lobbying group called the Balloon Council, saying a ban would create a negative narrative about balloons. The bill would impose a $500 fine on any violations.
There's a group called the Coalition Against Releasing Balloons in Ohio who wants this practice to end because it's dangerous for the environment. St. John's County is the first Florida County to ban the release of balloons and sky lanterns. I'm just so proud of our county and of our commissioners for passing this. This is a really big day for the environment and for wildlife. I welcome your co-sponsorship on a bill that would prohibit the release of balloons. While there's all kinds of litter that can be found on Rhode Island beaches, balloons are potentially the most dangerous. For the second year in a row, State Representative Susan Donovan of Bristol and Portsmouth has introduced legislation which would ban balloon releases. In 1990, California wrote into law a balloon law. That was very well crafted. They thought about who was producing the balloons, the manufacturers, and required them to address a warning symbol on the balloons and a link so you know who the manufacturer was. It goes after retailers and the rules that they have to abide by in order to sell Mylar balloons to the public in an effort to prevent power outages. They have to affix weights to any helium-filled balloons. They cannot have metallic streamers in conjunction with a Mylar balloon that is filled with a lighter-than-air material like helium. And it requires that all ribbons be individually tied with a single knot to that weight so that it's harder to just let them all go. And then it also goes after the consumers, making a simple act of a balloon release a misdemeanor under California law. There's a lot of room in that bill to put stricter guidelines. If that's what we need to do, if we can't control ourselves, maybe the consumer end needs to be looked at. Who knows? One attempt to amend the law was an outright ban. Just ban balloons 100% in California. And that did not go down. The florist industry, special event planners, small businesses, they all banded together and made sure that it was known that they did not want that to pass. Governor Schwarzenegger ended up vetoing that, so that ultimately never came to fruition. And in 2018, California required that metallic balloons not only include the manufacturer's information, but also a warning that specifically describes to consumers the dangers of allowing a balloon to come in contact with power lines. Compared with some of the aforementioned grim facts, power outages don't seem as big a deal as a negative side effect of balloon releases. But when Mylar hits a power line, it creates a short circuit and can cause not only a power outage, but serious fires that span thousands of acres. Power outages in the desert can be a life-or-death situation. We personally have lost power on days that are 118 degrees, and it is at the very least, scary. You have no air conditioning. You have no swamp cooler. You do not want to open that refrigerator too many times because the food is getting warmer every time. And when it's 118 degrees out, your food's going to spoil faster. So you go into absolute conservation mode. But what about people who can't survive without power? It can be a death sentence for elderly or other compromised individuals who require cooler temps or have machines that help them breathe. If you happen to be discussing a party and you hear about they are going to have balloons there or do a balloon release, that's an opportunity for you to kindly and friendly educate and redirect and potentially send that message down the line because their kids will see that, other people will see that. And if you've come up with a more creative idea that is eye-catching, people are going to catch on to that. 
but really does boil down to taking the onus of responsibility to have those tough conversations, sometimes tough, sometimes easy, but it's up to us individually on a, literally on a one-on-one basis to make a revolution come about. I find myself wondering, what is it about ritual and tradition that bonds us so deeply to carrying out specific acts? A lot of these things are tradition that are passed down from generation to generation. We have to ask ourselves if these rituals we've become accustomed to still serve a sensible purpose, or if the ritual itself has become environmentally dangerous. Could my ritual act pollute the earth? Could it start a fire? Could it kill something? These aren't questions that you typically ask yourself. You're not even thinking about this stuff because you're engrossed in the death of your loved one, but... With modern rituals like balloon release, we do have to ask ourselves these questions. Just like we practice leave no trace principles when we go backpacking, overnight camping, or for a long hike in a national park. We don't just say to ourselves, I want to go on a hike, I'm just going to go on a hike. We have to take preparatory measures. So if the answer is yes to any of those questions, you probably shouldn't do it. We haven't been doing balloon releases for all that long, but the consequences have always been the same. And if anything, they're more evident now. At the bottom line, it is littering. And worse, it can cause slow death, power outages, and fires. We cover a lot of topics that are hard and heavy and require a large group effort and a big fight to protect, to save, to steward. But this is something that we can address on a day-to-day basis, no matter where you live. Inspiring change in yourself starts with just the smallest action. And collecting mylar balloons that you find that are littered is one small way that we can give back and steward this earth. This is something we can incorporate in our lives. We can have conversations with people to educate them. And we can also have conversations with our local lawmakers to encourage and to be the change we want to see in the world. I would love to see a world without my lar. <laughs> Coming up next, Joshua Tree National Park Superintendent David Smith answers your questions. Hello, I'm Petey Mesquite, host of Growing Native from KXCI Tucson. Each week since 1992, I've been sharing stories, poems, and songs about flora, fauna, family, and the glory of living in the borderlands of southern Arizona. Recent episodes of Growing Native are available at kxci.org, Apple Podcasts, and PRX. The desert is beautiful, my friends. Yeah, it is. You're listening to 90 Miles from Needles, the Desert Protection Podcast. The most dangerous sound in the desert is your friend saying, hold my beer. All right, now it's time to go to the Redditors. Oh, gosh. I let them know we are interviewing the superintendent of Joshua Tree National Park. If you could ask David Smith anything, what would it be? I will be sharing these questions with him. Bring it on. So here we go. Question number one. What are his thoughts on how to manage the big increase in visitors to the park? On the one hand, it is great that so many people want to come to JTNP because it is such an amazing environment. But with all of the traffic and visitors, I can imagine it poses a lot of challenges for the natural environment as well as the staff. 
That is an awesome question. That, that is just well stated because your, your writer encompassed everything right there. We have watched the increase since 2013. It was about 1.3 million. We're about 3.1 million or so this year. So we've watched that growth of about 1.8 million over the last eight years. And at first we didn't really recognize what was happening because we're bureaucratic, slow thinking, not always terribly bright. But after about two years, like something has changed here. People really want to be out in the desert. And we came up with strategies to communicate messages, to disperse people, to start their visit down at Cottonwood, to come on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. We did things to allow traffic to flow a little bit better. We've increased the parking at some of our more hardened nature trails like Barker Dam, for instance. We've increased parking out there at a place where there is no expectation of having a wilderness experience there. Mm. Um, but it's, it was an appropriate place to get folks to go to those locations. So those are some like basic changes we've made in order to make it work. I think three million is probably a new reality for Joshua Tree. We're not seeing the exponential growth that we saw in previous years now. It seems to be tapering off for a while. I think the excitement of Instagramming yourself in front of a Joshua Tree is dying off as well. But I think three million is the new reality. And so the infrastructure that we have inside the park has to reflect that new reality. And that means probably in well-loved spots, probably more parking. It means really encouraging people to change their use patterns based on parking. And when parking's full at a location, you can't pull off over the curb and drive into the desert. You can't block traffic. People do. I know, but they can't. And it means we have to enforce it. And it means ticketing or towing vehicles in those situations. And it's amazing what a little bit of red curbing can do mm. and what signs that say $180 ticket can do. I've seen a change in behavior based on that. I think what we're going to try to do right now is accept this as a new reality, see if this, these infrastructure changes that we've made are working so that you can still have a good experience. And the last thing I want you to do is come to the park and say, oh my God, this is like Disneyland on a really bad day. I waited you know, in line two and a half hours, hours to, to get, get on this in. ride <laughs> and I'm just so frustrated. The west entrance, the construction there will begin in uh, hopefully October is what we're looking at right now as soon as that bid goes out. And if that happens, instead of waiting in about an hour of line and then every now and then getting flooded into the park because we block so much traffic that no one can get out of their house, you're gonna have an entrance station that's gonna have four windows operating mm. and you're not gonna have a big flood you're not gonna have a long line, and hopefully the quality for people that are coming to the park will be a little bit better. Okay. There is a part two to that that says, Yosemite has instituted a reservation <laughs> system in order to try and manage the crowds. Is Joshua Tree thinking about doing anything to help manage the amount of visitors at any one time? So reservations are definitely on the tool belt as something we can use. I am trying to figure out if that is an appropriate tool right now with three million visitors. Maybe I, we need to get up to the four million. Let's, let's, let's see what happens. When you implement a reservation system, you definitely impact a lot of people. It changes the whole culture of how you visit a national park. And there's good things and bad things. I've talked to a lot of park staff at Yosemite that just love the reservation system because th their perception is there's less people inside the park. I've talked to some visitors, longtime visitors to Yosemite that love it. I've also talked to visitors that say, this is unbelievable. I can't believe I can't get a chance to visit this park. It's my only time in the country. I've talked to staff that work the gates where they have like confrontations with visitors that are so upset and they didn't see the signs and there's to turn them around is so difficult. I'd like to avoid all that yeah. as well. So I don't think we're quite to reservation yet. We've also got these three entrances into the park. We've got four other entrances that are dirt roads. 
it's, it, it's gonna take a lot of human power and gates and yeah. <laughs> and building turnaround areas that we just don't have the money to deal with right now. Yeah, okay, excellent, excellent, thank you. What is the most dangerous portion of the park? I would say hiking in the summer. It can be just really dangerous if you don't plan well. We had these three wonderful young guys come out from San Diego. They were college students two summers ago, and they started hiking early in July at about one o'clock in the afternoon, starting off at Turkey Flats towards Pinot Mountain. And they got about halfway there before they realized they were gonna die. And one guy did, one guy came pretty close to dying, one guy was able to go out and get help. So I think lower elevations in the park during really hot spells are dangerous times to visit the park. And that includes 49 Palms up here. I mentioned earlier, I've done a number of rescues there with people hiking in the summer. But what we've done is we have this preventative search and rescue program right now. I've got a full-time ranger. She has about 20 volunteers and they hang out at these areas where we're having people that are having heat-related illnesses and warning them and having water there for them and encouraging them to go up to Keys View right now yeah. where it's 5,000 feet and cooler as opposed to here. And it's paying off. So that's one way that we're remedying some of the dangerous places inside the park. For people who say, oh, climbing is so dangerous. People shouldn't climb in the park. No, that's crazy. Climbers are some of the safest people I know. They've, they, because their life depends on it. They've got their whole system set up so they're protected. So I don't see climbing as being the place that I'm most concerned about. It tends to be those heat related places. How do I get a job at Joshua Tree National Park? Wow, you could do what I did and volunteer for a while down at Cottonwood and get your foot in the door that way. You can become, you can go to the job fair over at Copper Mountain College. We have a whole bunch of jobs that are available and special hiring authorities for people to apply for them. Even and my ears are like, I know. You're hiring? You we're hiring <laughs> fee rangers, we're hiring campground maintenance folks, we're hiring, gosh. There's four or five different job categories, and we will help you get through the USA jobs process, which can be daunting yeah. to go through and scary. But the jobs are there right now. Firefighters, oh my gosh, firefighting would be a great way to get your start in the park service. We had the hardest time recruiting people this summer, and there's gonna be a job fair, one over in Santa Clarita in, in November as well, to hire firefighters throughout the Southland. Excellent, we'll be letting them all know. Let them all know. All right, I know I've got a heavy hit in one coming. Okay, I promise not to cry. <laughs> With so many problems facing humanity, climate change, water scarcity, the threat of nuclear war, mass starvation, why is preserving the desert important? Wow. That one came from my husband. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We feel very strongly about it. So let me tell you, when, when San Francisco had the earthquake and the fire, and they had to rebuild the entire city. And so it was an apocalypse in San Francisco. City planners said, let's use the redwoods that we have over at Muir Woods. That's the only stand we have nearby. And the people of San Francisco and the federal government said, no, it's not worth it. We need to believe in something right now. And this beautiful place that was set aside to protect this one last remaining grove of redwoods in our area, let's protect that. And similarly, during World War II, when we were looking at building aircraft, light aircraft, we needed the light type of spruce that grows up in some of our northern Washington parks. Uh, Congress made the, uh, the suggestion that we need to start harvesting all that timber there. 
And uh, the Secretary of the Interior and the President said, no, we need to have these magnificent places so that when the war is over, our people have a place to, to recreate in and be in. So I would say these are our, these are our little treasures that we have to preserve because when times are hard, we need those places to recharge. So that would be my answer. Excellent answer. Why don't they enforce the no dog rules? Why don't they enforce the no dog rules? <laughs> we work so hard on the no dog rules. At any given time, we may have two or three rangers working inside the park. And it's very difficult when you're dealing with jump-starting someone's car or dealing with a DUI to go out to Barker Dam or to Rattlesnake Canyon and find the person that has the dog. Usually by the time you get there, they're done. Yeah. But what we've done to deal with dog issues is we've assigned certain of our interpretive staff and our general staff to, to go to key areas like Rattlesnake. And during prime time when we know dogs are there to hang out and just to do friendly education like, hey, how you doing? You probably didn't know this bighorn sheep up here. Dogs aren't allowed on trails in, inside of national parks. Would you mind taking your dog and maybe going exploring some public land outside the park boundary? And so that's helped out a lot. We've put up a whole series of signs that have been super effective communicating the message about protecting bighorn sheep. And so that has been an effective tool. Yet dogs make me angry. And I'm a dog owner. I've been a dog owner my whole life, although I just, our, our dog just died this week. Oh, we were right. dog free for the first time in 22 years. But I, yeah, I was frustrated. I cannot recreate inside of a park with my dog like I'd like to. But I also understand that there's a, a causal effect of dogs in these areas. And we have a responsibility because of the law and also protect these resources to go after dogs and dog owners in these areas. I would encourage you if you see dogs inside the park and you're able to get out on a cell, reach out to our dispatch and say, hey, dispatch, want to let you know there are a guy with four dogs walking up this canyon right now. And if we do have a ranger in the area, she's going to show up here and she's going to have a great opportunity to educate that visitor, whether it's through conversation or through a visit to the magistrate. Good to know that there's a resource number that someone <laughs> yes. can call. Yes. This one's really shitty, but I'm going to ask it okay. anyway. I'd love to know why it's acceptable to ask the public who pay an entrance fee to volunteer to clean bathrooms and trash bins in the park on holidays because there's not enough funding for staff that deserves to be well paid for their hard work and dedication. Wow, that's a really good question. Because you own this national park. And as a U.S. citizen, you have a responsibility for taking care of it. So we pay taxes. We pay user fees, just like with your house. You pay your taxes, you pay your mortgage for that house, but you also have a responsibility to take care of your house. Congress and the president distribute the funds that we have in our tax base to be able to get all the things that we need, our roads, our education, our defense, our parks. There's just not enough right now to go around. And that's why visitors are there. I don't like asking people to pick up things, but when I brought my children up, they knew that we pick up three pieces of litter a day. Each one of us does it, regardless of where we are. It's part of our philosophy in life. And we volunteer whenever we have time to help people in our community. Same is true for your national park. And our ranger staff, they work really hard. I'm super, super proud of them. I think our wages are competitive with most other industries that are out there right now. Yeah, folks would always like to have more income, but we're doing a really good job of taking care of our folks. Nice. What can be done to help save the Joshua trees in the park? The very first thing you can do is trying to reduce your carbon footprint as much as possible. And if that means carpooling with someone, if it means not running your air conditioning all day, those are all little steps we can do in our lives. We can go even farther. We can really 
start looking into photovoltaics for a house and solar and electric cars or just using your bike all the time, which is tough in the desert. I know it's very tough to do those things, but we are part of the reason Joshua trees are disappearing. All of us have a stake, especially in a country like the United States where we have a very high standard of living. And we also have a huge demand on the carbon footprint. It impacts the Joshua trees. So that's one of the things we can do in the coming years. The time will come where we're going to have to look at revegetating Josh trees at higher elevations inside the park where they used to exist, but they got burned out. That is places where we're going to look for volunteerism to help out as right. much as possible. But the, 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 honestly, it is finding a way to reduce or eliminate our carbon footprint on this planet. All right. Excellent answer. I didn't see that one coming. Had my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Top five weirdest experiences, please. Peculiar noises, odd mm -hmm. sensations, feeling watched or stalked, trees yeah. inexplicably damaged, that sort. Yeah. Also, as of yet, any ideas about missing visitors? I have to say, uh, walking down a nature trail, coming across a group of nudists is always top of my list of surreal kind of experiences here at Joshua Tree. So I definitely didn't see that one did coming. Not see, <laughs> did, not, did not see that at all. This was a, just a traumatic experience for me, but I was working down a cottonwood and a visitor crashes his car into the side of a hill and it catches on fire and I'm the only one there to deal with it. So that was just a really traumatic fatality that I will live with for the rest of my life. Wow. Um, oh, this is a good one. A German visitor had broken his leg. He'd fallen down and lost Palms Oasis. And I spent the night with him because we couldn't carry him out. It was at the middle of the summer. It was hotter than hell. Oh, geez. And in the morning, Riverside County sent their helicopter out. And dropping from the helicopter was this paramedic. And he took off his helmet. And it was our magistrate. It was our judge. And he goes, he goes, hey, David, how you doing? I'm like, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, I volunteer on the weekends with the Riverside County Search and Rescue. I'm here to treat your patients. Wow. So that was a pretty special day seeing that. I think having Mr. and Mrs. Obama show up to go hiking on their anniversary, and they chose Joshua Tree as the place that they wanted to reconnect with each other was a pretty special time. Wow. I know you're looking for like space aliens coming oh, down and, and like sonic booms and things like that inside the park. And what's the last part of that question? Thoughts on missing visitors? Ooh, well, you know what? We find them one way or the other. Recently, we've had three people that had gone missing for over a year or two. Oh, Iwasco was yeah. over a decade. Yeah, it was over a decade. And which it's just resolved. surreal that it was so close to where people were hiking. It's just, it's insane. I've gone on so many of these searches and you know, you, you think you've covered everything. One of the miracles was two years ago, three years ago, we had that gal from New Zealand who yeah. she's hiking down up by Lost Palm. She leans back on a dry waterfall. She falls over. She gets incredibly injured and her friends back in, in, in New Zealand say, hey, our friend is missing. Our ranger who's down there, Miles Landry, immediately calls CHP and says, I think this is her car. They go out there. He starts hiking out there. They spot her on a side trail, waving a map in the air. She'd been there for three or four days. She was this far from dying. So that was a pretty awesome find. I heard she's written a book. Oh, wonderful. Her experience. I'd love I'm to, I'd love to read it. To read. Yeah. You sell it at our bookstore. What are your thoughts about the future of climbing in Joshua Tree, i.e. regulations, developing mm -hmm. new routes, including climbers in the decision, safety concerns, access, etc. We're in the middle of, we're, we're just about ready to send out the draft of the climbing management plan, which will give us a, a blueprint for how to manage climbing into the future. Some of the issues that have been coming up have been social trails and their impact on the landscape and 
everything in the plant communities. It has been the use of wilderness and the proliferation of bolts in wilderness, which those are installations in wilderness. There's, there's, there's a process for allowing permanent installations in wilderness, but we haven't followed it. And as a result, there are thousands of bolts there now. The use of power drills in wilderness as well is a big issue that we're considering. And then there's just kind of new types of recreation that we hadn't thought about before. So highlining and slacklining, bouldering to some degree has really exploded. I don't know if you've seen everyone with their mattresses on their back you know, yeah. as they go to these different locations. And if they do it in mass, it has an uh, impact. So there's a lot of reasons why we're doing the climbing management plan right now. I would envision, we, the public will have a lot of say and input on how this is actually gonna be finalized, but there's gonna have to be probably some additional controls in wilderness. I would see a, a mandatory permit process for, for, for the installation or the reinstallation or the removal of bolts in wilderness, maybe throughout the entire park as well. We have been climbed heavily for about 50, 60 years now and 95% of the routes are probably that are decent are in place right now. I'm sitting here talking to you guys and I could see these bolts on ridiculous rocks. Like, why would anyone put a bolt there? Doesn't make any sense. But yeah. someone came up and said, oh, I wanna create my own little special route right here. There's some bolts inside the slot of Rattlesnake, that big yeah. batholith, and yeah. it's always really yeah. me the wrong way. This is an area that humans aren't supposed, supposed to, to be, be able in. to get in. Right. Leave it alone, will ya? I do expect to see more controls mm. on that. I don't expect to see controls for who's gonna climb. It's not gonna be like you have to get a permit to go climbing in certain areas. There's 8,000 documented climbs inside right. the park. I think we can spread it out enough. So I don't see that as being part of it. I see a well-established trail plan and when people deviate from it, we, we may even consider adding to the compendium, you have to stay on trails in certain areas in the park so that we don't get these spider webs of social trails all over the place happening. But climbing is a legitimate and recognized use of Joshua Tree. 20% of our visitors come here specifically for rock recreation. It is, it's very meaningful to 600,000 people a year that come to this park. And I would say half of the other people really enjoy watching them climb. I, when I'm out walking on the, the, the trails, people are like, oh my gosh, did you see that guy? And there's like a whole bunch of people watching someone climb. And that is a legitimate recreational thing to do inside of a national park. Yeah. I saw something about the climbers outreach in, in the news, uh -huh. some sort of a press release. Is there a link we can scrape yeah, up and um, share with us? Yeah, so if you go well? to the Park Service's website, so www.nps.gov slash J-O-T-R, and you go to the, it's like, it's like a climbing link. Okay. You'll get to that page. You can get an automatic newsletter sent to you. And all the information's there, but we also, about every two months or so, issue a news release we call them newsletter. And the newsletter talks about the climbing management plan, about a backcountry permit system. Since the park's visitation has exploded, we're probably gonna start doing reservations in some of our backcountry areas inside the park. Specifically, I'm looking at it right now over at Indian Cove, the Boy Scout Trail. I've gone in there before on runs in the weekend and come across groups of 60 people camping together. It's like, how is this possible? How did you miss this? Yeah. So we're looking at a registration system in the backcountry. That's another thing that's coming up right now. Nice. 
Oh, this is a good one. I've heard the rumor of a road and multiple large campsites planned to be built near the wilderness zone of Boy Scout Trail and the entrance to Willow Hole due to the extreme influx of visitors over the past decade. What? If true, do you think increased foot traffic noise pollution to this area of the park will bring negative consequences yes. to the Wonderland? Yeah. Yes, yes, there's, there is no truth to that statement whatsoever. <laughs> what about the one to the south? By Sheep Pass? Yeah, there was a rumor of one. So we're looking at a residential learning center there for kids. There's an old property that you guys were going to use, right? With yeah, it, it, it did not work out really work well, out. but we're looking at Sheep Pass. There's a nonprofit called JTree that we work with that does outdoor education. And they are in the process of raising funds to create a, like a learning bridge type campus that focuses on, on, on children going into the park and having get a- Get them young. Get them young, giving yeah. them that residential experience of being able to camp out and see the stars and then hike up to Ryan Mountain the next day. Relatively well used portion of the park. No, I would never develop a wilderness area of the park. It's contrary to believe. policy and law and it just it would make my stomach hurt. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that's just a rumor. Most memorable meteor shower and year. Also any UFO sightings, ha ha. Yeah, you know what, it wasn't at Joshua Tree. I'm sorry to say, I was hiking out of Horseshoe Canyon at Canyonlands National Park. It was at three in the afternoon and I look up and I see this incredibly bright thing with a long trail coming through it. And then all of a sudden it explodes in the sky and I see three other light things going out, out towards Hanksville and I was like, what was that? Was it a missile? What's going on? And I was all freaking out. And then the Salt Lake City Tribune did a story about an earthquake in that area that time at that point. It was a meteorite crashing down into the desert of Utah and it triggered a seismic activity wow. that they thought it was an earthquake. It was pretty cool. That's an amazing thing yeah. to get to witness. That was really cool. I had a great time. I have done meteor shower parties with visitors before at Grand Canyon, and man, they are cold, miserable times. <laughs> That's why meteor showers out here in the desert are wonderful. way better. Oh my gosh, <laughs> going up to like Jumbo Rocks at night and just watching it would be great. Yeah. But I'm just, now that I'm like 55, I just fall asleep. Like, yeah. I can't stay up this late. Yeah. All right. That's all for this time. Please do check out our website at 90milesfromneedles.com, where you'll find show notes, photos, videos, and all sorts of other little goodies. I'm Alicia Pike, signing off. This episode of 90 Miles from Needles was produced by Alicia Pike, editing by Chris Clark, podcast artwork by the estimable Martine Mancha. Theme music is by Brightside Studio. Other music by Slipstream. Follow us on Twitter or on Instagram at 90MI from Needles and on Facebook at facebook.com slash 90 miles from needles. Listen to us at 90 miles from needles.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to David Smith and Christian Daniels for the interviews and to WKYC Channel 3, WJZ, Fox 5 San Diego, Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow, KPBS, and CBS 8 San Diego for their contributions to our fair use sampling. Thanks to our newest Patreon supporters, Leland Means, Coral Clark, David McMullen, and Michael E. Gordon. Support this podcast by visiting us at 90milesfromneedles.com slash Patreon and making a monthly pledge of as little as five bucks. Or visit 90milesfromneedles.com slash KOFI to make a one-time contribution. Our supporters enjoy privileges including early access to this episode. Crucial support for this podcast came from Tad Coffin and Laura Roselle. All characters on this podcast experience a wide range of temperatures 
temperatures and weather conditions and can be classified into four types, hot, semi-arid, coastal, and cold. This is Bouse Parker reminding you that littering the desert with toxic crap is a lousy way to celebrate or commemorate anything. See you next time. Sit, heart, sit. Good dog.